Hello and welcome back to Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm Jason Concepcion, and this is your guide to the galaxy. From Trantor to Terminus and hundreds of millions of other worlds, space is a vast place and we aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on the show. Every week, I'm recapping and breaking apart each episode of season two with Foundation showrunner and executive producer David S. Goyer. Today, we're talking about episode seven titled A Necessary Death. Welcome back, David. Nice to be here, as always. And we have a very special guest with us on the pod today, the writer of this episode, Eric Carrasco. Eric, welcome. Hey, good to be here. And let's dive into the recap, which was written by you, Eric, along with uh, David Cobb, and it was directed by Mark Tonderai. With Harry Offworld, so Gale and Salvor Think, uh, they are there on Ignis uh, in Tellum's creepy cult all alone. But weirdly enough, Gale is seemingly right at home with these folks. There are things happening here that you don't understand, and right now we just need to accept that. No, no. Uh, Salvor is quite disconcerted. Something is wrong with this place. She takes matters into her own hands to discover what went on with Harry, and she discovers Harry's body chained in the water, but Telem unfortunately catches her in the act, and she makes her go to sleep in the water, perhaps joining Harry in her fate. Sometimes you have to absorb the pain, because sometimes a little death is necessary. I can't help but feel that there must be more to this story. <laughs> Probably. Who knows? Uh, on Trantor, the preparations for the royal wedding are continuing apace. I'm sure my room is strong enough to carry the Cleon child. Fabled, though it's kicks maybe. Sarath is having clandestine meetings with Dawn, where she is trying to convince him, uh, hey, of course I'm going to marry Day, but maybe it could be your kids that uh, continue the lineage. We'll see how that works out. This is suicide. No. It's a bloodless fucking coup. The war between Foundation and Empire, the Cold War at least, is heating up. Just as General Rios arrives in the Outer Reach, the Outer Reach reaches out. Hober Mallow unsuccessfully tries to recruit the Spacers. It goes sideways when Bel Rios shows up, but Hober is able to escape, and we get a, a really worrying for the Empire display of the Foundation Whispership jump abilities. The magicians have learned a new trick. And then we have Polly and Constant. They get their opportunity to make their peace pitch to the Empire, but Day is really not having any of it. Selling us peace while prodding for rebellion behind our backs. Harry, or a slice of Harry, who has been tagging along in Constance's mind, appears. Same, same faces, face. same room. There's nothing ever change in Empire. Day has it out with Harry and essentially says, you think you can uh, foresee everything? Well, I'm getting married and you didn't see that coming. So what about that now? And we're gonna send our attack ships to Terminus and that's gonna be the end of Foundation. You sneaky little bastard. Uh, a lot happening here. Eric, you're new to the writing team. Did you have any relationship to Asimov's books? I did, uh, but not to these books. I was a big Asimov fan, a big fan of the Robots series mm -hmm. um, before this, and so I grew up with those. Perfect episode for that, then. This little Three Laws reference in this in this episode. That was huge for yes. me in particular. <laughs> Like, I came in on a Demerzel mission to this show to get into her programming, and that was great. I mean, one of the things that Asimov did in the sequels was to retroactively tie the iRobot books into the same universe as the Foundation books. And so the three laws were permissible, 
and I was excited about it, and Eric was very excited about it. And David, what was it? Uh, what was it about Eric's work that drew you to him and made you think we got to get this guy in the room? Well, Eric and I met a long time ago when he was developing a pilot that we developed together. That was how long ago was that? Years. I mean, seven five, years. I think six years. Six years ago. Six years. Wow. So. Eric had written this pilot that I thought was fantastic that we couldn't get off the ground. One day, I hope we still get off the ground, but I had really enjoyed the experience of working with Eric. And then when I was working on Batman Unburied, the Spotify podcast, I contacted you and said, do you want to come on and and help us with that? And I was blown away by what Eric did on that. And then I said, gee, do you want to come on to Foundation? For the listener, I'm wearing a Batman sweatshirt as we record this podcast. But we just had a good time working in that room. And uh, it, was, it was really nice to be invited here because it was even more fun. I, I will say that Eric has become an absolutely indispensable writer and producer on this show. And now it's hard to imagine doing it without him. I can't take a compliment, though. So, All right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to avoid that compliment, let's dive into this episode. It's quite an eventful one. To me, the central theme in this episode is the cost of freedom. And then I think something about agency, too. You know, you have these various characters that are trying to forge alliances to create these new deals. But of course, you find when you try and broker that relationship that the party you're bringing in has its own ideas about things as well. We see that with Sarath. We see that with Demerzel, Harry, tell them. You see that with Hober and the Spacers. Hober and the Spacers, right? Where the Spacers are saying, well, essentially the cost of what you are proposing is too high. Um How did the development of that theme kind of unfold through the telling of this particular episode? I mean, you did a very good job of (laughs) kind of iterating (laughs) the main theme in a more succinct way than I possibly could have. But I think one of the themes that we've been hitting from the very beginning is the idea of the arc of history, psychohistory, and whether or not individuals have any agency within the plan or within an empire itself. I mean, that is one of the kind of perennial themes that we hit again and again and again and again. And so even Sarath is in a situation where she's facing this brokered marriage. She doesn't feel like she has any agency. She's being blocked largely by a robot that killed her family. And yet that (laughs) robot herself or itself has been programmed and doesn't have any agency. The Cleons don't really have any agency. Anyone who's working for the foundation has to wonder whether or not they have any agency. And so you kind of go around the circle and everyone is chafing. Uh, We'll start with Sarath and Demarzel when they have their confrontation here, that private conversation after the medical exam. I was like gripping my chair, like when Sarah tells Demarzel that she knows that she's a robot, this type of robot that was thought to be extinct in this world now. I was like, why are you telling her this? Don't tell her, don't do this. (laughs) Yeah, she's really like, she pushes it for the first appearance. She is pushing and pushing and pushing. And uh, we were all very scared for her. Yeah. I mean, she's potentially saying something that will sign her own death warrant right there. I guess it's the idea here, like, I've got something on you. I've got Mm -hmm. something on you. And if you don't watch it, I'll let the world know. Yes. Yes. Testing boundaries, testing how much, to your point, how much agency she has in this world and how much danger she's in. But she's been on a mission to find out if indeed 
Day killed her family this whole time. And so part of provoking reactions from the people who might be involved is ultimately what leads her to that information. Yeah. Because she's provoking, she gets confirmation. So she has to poke and poke and poke until finally she does get her answer. It just risks her life to do it. And hopefully if we did our job right, the audience is starting to like Sarah, but wonder whether or not she's going to make it out of the season alive. <laughs> Well, that is exactly how I was feeling. Um, We mentioned the three laws, and this exchange is exhilarating, I think, for fans of sci-fi, certainly. And and even for those who aren't, the the drama of the confrontation is electric. All robots were bound by three laws. The laws made me unable to harm a human or allow harm to come to a human. And now? Now I'm bound by only one law. Which is? I serve empire. And I'll soon be an empress. Hence my line of questioning. When the time comes, I want to know. Will you serve me? I will serve Empire. Eric, tell us about the three laws that Demarzel references here. The three laws of robotics are from the robot short stories and books by Isaac Asimov. The first one is that robots are not allowed to harm humans. Uh, The second is that robots follow orders from humans unless that contradicts the first law. And the third law is that they're allowed to protect themselves only so long as it does not contradict the second law or the first. And so it was exciting to get into that and show that that programming has evolved for her over time. She's explicit that she says, now I serve one law, and it's not either of those three laws. I mean, we've seen her harm many a human, so clearly yes. <laughs> that at least has changed. Yes. Sarah says, well, you know, I'll be empress. Uh, I'm sure that means you'll be serving me, right? And Demarcel says, I will serve empire. I mean, that feels like a very, very strong line in the sand of, I'm going to do what I feel is best, and that's not going to mean what you think is best just because you're empress. Absolutely. And we're drawing a lot of lines this season between what does that word mean, empire? When we say Demerzel serves empire, there's empire, the concept, empire, the embodiment thereof. And, you know, we'll we'll get into in future episodes, what is the empire she's serving? That's what's fascinating about her programming. And what happens if day or dawn or dusk are in conflict with one another Mm -hmm. And they each have different interpretations over what would serve Empire best and which side of the coin does she fall on. Um, This medical check that Demarzel compels Sarath to do right here, right at this moment, it feels like a dominance plan at the same time. This is a robot. How is Demarzel perceiving this moment and why do this now? It really, you know, if, if she was a human, you'd say this is a power play, but she's a robot. So what is this? I mean, it is a power play. I mean, we got the idea from it If you go back into history, there are lots of examples of royal couples consummating in front of an audience or queens getting a royal checkup in front of lots and lots of people. They were very public. And so we thought it would be interesting to do a kind of futuristic version of that. But on top of it, have that scene be loaded with the information that Sarah had just revealed to Demerzel that she knows she's a robot. So that's loaded into it. And you know, she's effectively in a kind of a stirrup chair in a, in a vulnerable situation, but she's having this barbed exchange with Demerzel in this public setting where there are all these double entendres flying back and forth between them while all of these people are witnessing this. We just thought it would be really interesting to complicate the scene. You're not harvesting anything until Empire and I are legally bound. <laughs> Can we old-fashioned? You're in no position to argue. Is that a joke, Demerzel? I can argue in any position. 
The moment you accepted Empire's proposal, your room became Imperial property. And you would know all about being Imperial property, wouldn't you? There, I think uh, Demerzel has a reason to kind of come after Sarath a little bit at the beginning of this episode, because in the prior episode, Sarath takes over Day's speech at the mm, arena yeah. and takes control of that situation and says, you know, says the words, we belong to you, to the people, and says something that is like dangerously close to democratic or, you know, not something that would serve the interests of Brother Day and Demerzel. And so I think it is a bit of a power play to bring her in and kind of rein her in. Yeah. Is Demersel jealous of Sarath? Sarath, you know, basically says, hey, I know that you're having sex with my soon-to-be husband. You can continue doing that. And you don't need to worry about the process either, Demersel. I know you have an arrangement with my husband-to-be, and I won't get in the way. You and Day wish to continue playing Sanctum and Scepter. I'm happy to carry his children and let you do the drudge work. Is Demersel, does Demersel have feelings? Is there a way that we can understand an android having feelings about this particular situation? Well, that's does the question. dream of electric d- sheep? Yeah, yeah. Does Demerzel <laughs> have Does Demerzel have feelings, or is she really good at aping having right, feelings? Right. That's definitely one of the questions we hope the audience is pondering. It seems like Demerzel has feelings, and she might. And I'm not a hundred percent sure we can confirm whether or not that's the case yet. She feels at least something approaching anguish in season one, for instance, when she yeah. kills Dawn, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, and when she so, rips her face off. So it seems like, at least to us outwardly, that she does love these Cleons in some fashion. But we also know if she's programmed to serve them that that love is mandatory. So Yeah, would she love them without the programming? Right. Don't know. Incredible performances from Laura Byrne is... Demarzel and Ella Ray Smith as, as Queen Sarath. They're so good. Just the depth of things going on between these two is really amazing. Absolutely. There's, but I think an equally amazing scene is a scene shortly thereafter where Sarath talks to Day in the gardens. Absolutely. In the same spot where Day committed Azura to that horrendous fate at the end of season one, which was very deliberate. And both Lee and Ella Ray were amazing in that scene because that's another scene where having dangerously poked the bear, you know, Sarath with Demerzel, she then does it again with Day and then basically says to Day, I know that you killed my family. And it's a moving scene that just gets excruciatingly dark by the end of it when Day kind of understands what she's saying. I only wish I could tell them what an impact you've had on their lives. However, indirectly. But I can't. So instead, I'm telling you. He's barely paying attention when she starts talking. Yeah. And then as she gets into the family, he realizes what's going on. And then he just has that incredible way of like taking control of the scene and like using his height and his physicality and his voice. And he just completely takes it over. And then you're terrified for her. Uh, t- tell us about shaping that, because what really struck me about this exchange was how Sarath is coming at this indirectly. They both really are. It takes a while for the coin to drop, and it takes a while for either of them to come right out and say the thing that they are actually saying, that kind of work around the edges of it, because it's such a dangerous topic. How did you arrive at shaping this? One of the things we talked about in the writer's room with that scene is, because we never meet any of Sarah's family, we thought it was important to humanize them. And so we thought we would come up with this sort of wonderful scene where she sort of goes down the line of all the family members that died 
and yeah. talks about everything that was wonderful about them. Yeah, they'll be your kin too, I thought was a great, yes. was a really, really smart way in from her. And it's a really moving speech that Eric and Dave Cobb wrote. We had a, we had an assist from Liz Pong on that yeah, one, Liz actually. Yeah, Pong also had assisted that. Uh, that's Liz Pong, who's a, a, a writer-producer on the show. It's a moving, moving speech. And what's so interesting about, we talk a lot about trying to do multiple things in a scene at one time. And so the scene is very moving. You kind of get back in touch with Sarah's pain and you feel for Sarah. But that even as the audience is feeling for Sarah, you see day detach Mm -hmm. and grow cold, you know, Mm -hmm. in the shots. And so he's going in the exact opposite direction that the audience is as she's talking. And then you can see him sort of grinding his teeth. And then he basically says to her, I don't give a shit about any of that. And you better <laughs> yeah. you better watch what and, you do, girl. And makes her thank him. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, like all you need to say is I'm grateful. And then she says I'm grateful with just kind of crying with the most, the biggest kind of fuck you grating her teeth. Yeah. And I will add here, one of the things that's unusual about the way we write foundation is for comedies, you might break an episode together, someone will go off and then you'll room the script and everyone involved will try to see if they can beat certain jokes. It's very rare in a drama to do that. But what we do on our show and we've done since the beginning is a given writer or writers will write an episode and then the entire team reads it and talks about it and makes pitches for, well, this could be better that, even down sometimes to lines or words. And it's a very communal experience. And so in that way, it's kind of fun because every writer has their fingerprints a little bit on every episode. It kind of keeps us all invested in the whole show. It's not just like, oh, I did my episode, now I'm out of here. Like, mm-hmm. we're all working on everything from a really big macro level down to like, like David was saying, like down to the word. I have text threads where it's just me and Jane arguing over whether a word should be the German root or the Latin root. <laughs> and so part of getting those conversations like you're talking about is it's veiled, it's veiled, it's veiled until it's not. And mm. this is like a crossover episode for Sarah, at least, where it's still veiled. We've spent a lot of time on that sanctum and scepter metaphor that she uses to describe Day and Demerzel having sex. But she is coming out and saying it finally. And so, yeah, yeah. so you're you're having it all come through. Is, does Day, is he having any second thoughts about this particular coupling, you know? Eric and he I just he's looked great. at each other. Yeah, he's, he, we looked at each other and shook our heads. He's he now, thinks it's he's, rad and good. Yeah, he's yeah. made good decisions. <laughs> he doesn't. He does not doubt himself at all yeah. until possibly a moment right before the end of the season, and then he might say, "Holy shit!" Uh, the the tightrope that Sarah is walking is really something. She really feels like now, okay, I've got to I've got to find this crack somewhere in Empire. I need an ally from the inside who can help me, and that is. Dawn, they take this huge risk to meet in the tunnels. What's what's there for both of them? What's spurring this? When I started on the show, there was a scene that was already written that was like one of the early dinner scenes in the season. And there was one line in there where Sarath kind of flirted with Dawn. He mentions, you know, it'll be like we're siblings. And she goes, oh, is that what we'll be? And I just really fixated on that particular line. And we just kept looking at that relationship at what is the difference between Dawn and Day and what does that do for Sarath, who is trying to split the brothers apart and infiltrate and figure out what's going on. And so it's at some point in the room after we kept 
hammering that, we realized, okay, these guys have the same genetic code. So if you're looking at this monster who killed your family and knowing you're going to have to carry that man's child at some point, to me, I don't even know that the decision she's making to suggest this union with Don, this like affair with Don, is even a, a revolutionary tactic. I don't even know that it's to tear them apart as much as it's to have this one little thing that is a choice that she can make for Agency. herself. Agency. This one little yeah. thing she can do. And maybe no one will even know about it, but she'll know. What is drawing Dawn to Sarah? There's a very dangerous meetings that they're having. What is it about her pitch that appeals to him? He, and we know this from the very first episode this season, he is not going to sit on that middle throne. He is born to do a thing that he is not going to get to do. And he's been taught his whole life that, you know, you're going to have a legacy, you're going to be the emperor. And now he knows that's been taken away from him. And so Zareth is offering him a chance to have that, even if no one knows, that he gets to have that footnote to history. And I think that appeals to someone like a Cleon who thought they were going to have this big job and didn't. And then also, she's amazing. She's brave just for being there and brave for having these kinds of conversations. And I think there's something attractive to him about that. And I think there's something about the Cleons when they are this age, when they're Dawn age, that like you saw last year, the part of the fun of Foundation is these things happening in cycles. And so last year you saw him run away with a gardener. You saw him run away with Azura. There is something about these guys at this age that if a young woman comes to them with an adventure, they may take that. Let's talk about this really explosive confrontation between Harry and Day. You know, same room, same faces, but different versions of... Of all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah So yeah. much has changed, even though the, everything appears to be the same. How did you envision this confrontation? It, there's so much to dig into with what they say to each other. Ah. Uh. Man, I mean, this is one of the scenes we spent the most time on yeah. and wrote the most drafts of. Look, <laughs> Lee, Lee and Jared are just titans, right? In season one, the only time these characters are together was, you know, in the first episode when Harry and Gail are brought in front of the throne. And from the get go, I said to the room, we got to get these two guys together again. It's been a long time. Can we figure out how to get them in the throne room. And we didn't initially have an idea of how that would work. I just said, <laughs> I want to get them together again. And everyone was like, well, how the fuck does that happen? And eventually, I don't even know who came up with it. Eventually we came up with this idea, which was so interesting because it was an echo of the scene that happens in the first episode. We sue for peace, not because we fear we will lose, but because we know with mathematical certainty if there's war, we shall win. Hmm. One of the things we talked about with that scene was days and, you know, on top of it. And then it seems like Harry's on top of it. And then it seems like it's day and then it's Harry again. Yeah. So it's this insane tennis match between the two. We are just thinking, who's winning this? And it keeps changing. And it appears at the end of the scene that day has out calculated Harry. When we have said this is the season of, of war and war between Foundation and Empire, this is kind of what we mean and how we're personifying it. Like as much as any, you know, spaceship battle we could show you, Jared talking to Lee is the war, right? It's the, the ideologies clashing and two guys talking in a room, which is as Foundation as it gets. And I had always pitched, you know, I remember Apple saying, can you distill this show down into one line? And I said, it's a thousand year chess game between Harry Seldon and Empire with yeah. all the other characters in between being the pawns. And so this is match two in, you know, however many chess matches these guys are going to have. 
Also, we finally got an atomic ashtray into oh, the yeah. show, which we have been talking about <laughs> yeah. for so long. Which is in Asimov stories. We, is, yeah. they, they introduced the idea of an atomic <laughs> ashtray. One moment in this chess match, Harry and Day, that I was kind of floored by, it's that moment when Harry, you know, he lays out his peace terms and he says, and oh, by the way, you know, we're not doing this because we're weak. We're actually stronger than you. We can beat you. We have better stuff than you. Yeah. We'd never really heard Harry talk like this before. Is Harry being sincere about that? Does he really feel that way? Like, we, we can beat you straight up. We'll beat you in a war. Or is he bluffing? Right. I mean, do you honestly expect us to answer that? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't be any fun. Yeah, it wouldn't. Um, I was also struck by Day's best line for Harry kind of comes when Harry has left. He's electrocuted Brother Constant, and he says to her, essentially, is this your king? Like, this is your guy? He, he hijacks your mind? He treats an elder with such disrespect? That's the person who's leading you? And you could really feel, or at least I could, Brother Constant really sit with that and think about it. Yeah, he's not wrong. I mean, and yeah. one of the things, I love it when antagonists or villains say things that are true. Yeah. It's just cool. And so there's nothing that Day says in that scene that isn't true. And you can see that Constant, who's been the most devout, I mean, Constant is Constant, hence her name. And she's really shaken by all of this. She's shaken by the fact that she was used by the prophet. She's been lied to by the prophet. And she's in a place of real doubt. I think both her and Polly, and, and I guess Day too, give us the opportunity to kind of reckon with Harry Seldon and, and his mm -hmm. ideas and, and complicate them. I'm like really sympathetic to people who doubt psychohistory because there, he has no reason not to. Like, I really yeah. do sympathize. Like, the central conceit of our show is that this guy, Harry Seldon, can predict the future. And I think that we're seeing that a lot in the world now with technocrats and stuff being like, mm -hmm. oh, I can save us with technology, but it has to be me. And there's ego behind that. <laughs> and so I'm very sensitive to like Dave being like, I did it. I did the thing you wanted. Yeah. He's like, I, I, I ended the genetic dynasty. Can we like leave it alone? Do you still have to have this big plan? Do we still have to do all this foundation stuff? Uh Let's talk about one aspect of Harry's plan, which is Hober's outreach to the Spacers. He mentions part of the reason that he selected Hober for this mission was he needed somebody who could speak to those who, for whom the religious kind of touch would not really land. Well, Hober is a master trader, and he's good at, at selling people on things. And so we always thought it would be fun to put Hober in a situation where he had to sell the shit out of something. He's quite passionate about his pitch to the Spacers and everything yeah. that he's saying is is right and earnest. I'm curious about the Spacers. Could you tell us about their role in, the, in this story and their relationship with Empire, how that works? We said or implied that they were human, but they were genetically bred to navigate and to operate in zero G and that their minds could withstand the kind of dislocation that folding space brings with it. And we thought it would be interesting that they were unwilling participants. Mm. We learn in this episode that a certain percentage of their offspring are tithed to empire, effectively held hostage. Yeah. And that they don't have freedom and that what they really want, again, we talk about agency, is they really just want to leave the galaxy and 
go chart the stars and just be done with normal humans. It's interesting too that all the navigators that we've shown in the season so far are women and that they have this interesting naming convention where the women are she blanks blanks, you know. Yeah. She bends she, stars. she, she bends light. Uh, she yep. is center. She is center. Yeah. Uh, she shines brightly. And that's just this interesting naming convention that they have. It's this sort of three-word name that describes what they do. And obviously, they appear to be a matriarchal society. The the performance here is really complex because on the one hand, the spacers, you know, outright reject Hober's outreach and in fact, turn them over to imperial forces saying, here's what they offered us and we don't want any part of this. And as a measure of trust, here's everything. Here's his ship. Here's everything. At the same time, you, I felt like I could feel a real, hmm, this is interesting. Yeah. How do we explore this? It's a good pitch. Hober, Hober makes a good pitch. Yeah. You want us to work together. And our pay would be opalesque. Your pay would be opalesque, but your reward would be freedom. Keeping your daughters and sons and the offspring of the whole swarm living for yourselves. Can you even imagine it if the dam broke and you could just flow out into the ocean of the universe? It's also interesting when we first meet Bell, he's on this prison planet Lepsis and he's mining this material called opalesque, which we subsequently discover is the nutritional supplement that the spacers mm-hmm. need to survive that Empire has a monopoly on. In the previous episode, when, when Bell comes back aboard the ship and you meet his crew and you meet Chibens, she even makes a comment about the opalesque under his fingernails yeah. and did you bring some for the class, you know? Yeah. So yeah, been creeping up on us throughout the season. When the spacers give up Hober Miles and Bell Rios, um, they wanted to come in person because the spacer wanted to, to reunite with her daughter. Tell us about this moment. And it's so devastating and heartfelt and, and why it was important to have that in there. We always try to challenge ourselves to see if we can flesh out secondary or even tertiary characters. And I'm sure it was at least halfway through breaking the season that it occurred to us, what if she bends, is she a center's daughter? I don't think that was baked into the plan. No, from the I beginning. think that was actually one of the last things that got added was yeah. we, we, we often do a pass at the end of the season where once the story's laid out, right, we go through and we go, okay, so now we got all these ideas. Some of those big Asimov ideas are even personified, but can we turn them into a family drama? Can we turn right. them into something really relatable and small and emotional? And that those are often like the last things to get plugged in in places with these tertiary characters. It's what we call the lice comb pass is like affectionately like the third pass of the scripts where it's like you've combed out the hair with the big brush and then the smaller brush. And, and now you're with a mm. really fine tooth comb going through getting out all the last little nits. And if you want to feel the tragedy of having your children tithed to navigate <laughs> for the empire, you want to see somebody who had to give up their own kid for this, you know? Yeah. Well, I love the the sequence with Becky just tearing stuff up inside the spacer ship, allowing her to escape. Becky, good. Becky is our friend. Becky, I mean, we could only afford so many shots of Becky this season. She's really <laughs> <Of course>. expensive. <laughs> and I, I remember, I think there's 17 shots of the T-Rex in the first Jurassic Park or something like that. Yeah. And I think maybe we've got something like 32 shots of Becky across the season, which is really not that many, but we were determined to make them really shine. And part of that was... 
I just remember saying, we're not going to put like three shots of Becky every episode. Sometimes there's going to be three and sometimes there's going to be 10, you know, and you're just going to get a bunch of them. And this was one of those episodes and Frame Store that did Becky this season, uh, one of our VFX vendors just did a spectacular job with her. It looks, it, she looks fantastic. How do you, how do you go about like scripting a sequence like this, Eric? Do you, do you say, and now Becky tears stuff up for about uh, 45 seconds and then we go back to... I mean, we script the action. Yeah. We, we, yeah. we script the action in great detail and then we work with the directors to figure it out in more depth and figure out what's actually achievable and the people who actually have to do it. Every time we do a Becky scene, there's a stunt man in a green leotard with a big foam Becky head that like runs in and like mimes the action so people can get a sense of, you know, where Becky's head is and, you know, if it's Becky's drooling on. You have to release video of it. We, it must it's be on the docket. Hysterical. I mean, we definitely need to do in some of the scenes like a before and after with the guy in the green leotard uh, with the foam Becky head and then the finished VFX. It's amazing. It's so funny. But don't, you know, don't watch it before you watch the show because yeah. you'll, you'll never be scared of Becky, Becky ever, ever again. again. <laughs> it's so funny. Foundation technology has outpaced our own. Their whisper ships are more nimble and they can navigate without the aid of spacers. There's more. Seldon sent Mallow to meet with the spacers and tempt them with promises of freedom. I found Bell's reaction to this failure to be really interesting. You know, Glowen has been trying to pitch him on, why didn't you just, why are you even doing this? Like, don't do this. You hate them. Why are you helping them? And he says, essentially, you know, I've been to the lawless areas of the galaxy. I've seen what it's like. It's not good. And we don't want that. It, essentially saying Empire is the best that we have right now. But you could feel that tension. It's really interesting. How how much is he struggling with this particular mission? Well, the whole point of Bell's character was to say, can you have an honorable man following the dictates of a dishonorable empire? Yeah. And how does that person square that sense of duty and honor even while they're being given orders that they find morally repugnant. But that scene is also one, I think, one of the standout scenes of the season. I love that scene because it's so rare when Bell lays out their options. Let's say I put word out that I've got something top secret. I get close to him. I get around the aura and the million other defenses we know nothing about, and I kill the man. They decant another, load him up with all the same old shit, and we're back to where we started. But Bell, or I go bigger. I take the fleet and we blow up the palace from orbit. Now they decant three new ones. Well, not if we blow up the three new ones as well. And if they really are ending the genetic dynasty. Okay, then... okay, let's say we take down Empire. What does that look like? It's so rare that you see someone in a TV show or a film just kind of go down the list of possible options. And he's really thought it through. And you feel for him because, again, talked about characters not having agency. This guy is clearly an honorable guy in this really screwed up situation where he's trying to fulfill his orders, but get as few people killed as possible. He's just mitigating damage. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, let's go to, to Ignis, where things are getting truly disconcerting and weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're watching Gale and Salvor split apart. You know, Salvor having quite natural and pressing concerns about what is going on here, whereas Gale is like, I've never felt more at home. And it's interesting that 
you know, Gail is not even questioning how good she feels about what is going on here. Um, what is going on here and how much I, you know, we're, I, I understand we're meant to be questioning this, but yes, it's interesting that Gail can't even question how much of her own thoughts are actually her own. Well, we've also shown in the last episode that Tellum has been subtly manipulating them, manipulating yeah. them even before they got to Ignis yeah. and sort of incepting them with various ideas. By the way, can we just take a moment to say how awesome Rachel House is that plays Tellum? Oh, yeah. I mean, best. she's terrific. And, and she's funny because I first came across her when I saw Hunt for the Wilder People, which is an early film by Taika Waititi. And, and she's funny in that. And I just absolutely fell in love with her. And it's not often that this happens, but when we were writing this season, she popped into my head as Tellum and we contacted her and ended up getting her. But she's it's so interesting because she usually, I think most American audiences have seen her in funny roles. Yes. She's also in, in Thor 3. Yeah, Thor in, Ragnarok yeah. and stuff like that. And she's just so creepy and evil. And again, throughout the season, an antagonist slash villain that also says a lot of things that are true. Yes. Yeah. So it's really slippery when you've got a villain doing She has that. that facility for comedy, which is really useful because she can just toss off this stuff very casually and very quickly, but it's still like big villain ideas. Like, Yeah, when she's like chewing the head off a ghost mollusk and, you know, and she's charming, but clearly evil as hell. What What is it that Tellum hates about the Prime Radiant so much and what Harry's doing? I mean, it's it's artificial. So it's, sure. she, yeah. she is such a natural person surrounded by people who's brains can perform all of these special things and this man has come along to artificially suggest the way the world is going to go with a machine i think the thing that Tellum hates about the radiant and harry is the same thing that day hates about the radiant and harry if you believe the concept of the radiant it's hard to argue with it but it's also it's very convenient for harry because no one else but harry and gail can read it Right. Yeah. And so are they telling the truth? Are they not telling the truth? But the other thing, quite rightly, that Tellum is threatened by when it comes to Harry is that he's a natural leader and he's really smart. And if she's not careful, he's going to end up taking over the planet. So, so she she very correctly perceives him to be a threat and the radiant to be a threat, because God forbid, even if she gets rid of Harry, that someone else in her group learns how to read the Radiant and read psychohistory because then they can challenge her. I would say also that she could see right away that Harry has some kind of influence on Gale. And we know by this point in the season that she is very interested in Gale and what Gale can do. So both the Radiant, which is artificially doing the same thing Gale can naturally do, and Harry himself is someone who's holding back Gale. And Tellum knows, I can influence Gale by getting her to get fully invested in this mentalic thing and in, into what she can do naturally, not the math, not the radiant. And if I can get rid of those two things, Harry and the math, then I can co-opt Gail and co-opt that power. And she says, I want you to lead us, but I'm not sure we buy that. Yeah, I don't know that we do. <laughs> uh, Gail makes a rousing speech to the mentalics here in this episode, and it's notable to me as really the first time we're seeing Gail say, I'm a leader, I can be a leader, people can follow me. Tell us about this scene, Eric. We talked about that scene almost like a mirror image of one of the Harry scenes from the pilot or something. It's the first time you're seeing mm-hmm. Gail 
put into her words what she thinks this mission is. And for someone who has felt swept up by it this whole time and not necessarily in control of where it's going, we just approached it like we would like to hear her say why she wants to do this, why she believed yeah. in it in the first place, why she's sticking around, why she, you know. And so to hear her get up and do that, I think, was a really special opportunity. I think Lou crushed it. Yep. Agreed. Tell him says something really fascinating about her particular philosophy about the trade-offs a leader needs to make. And she says of the mentalics and their ability to directly plug into the suffering of others, this through the mollusks that they're frying up for the welcome feast. It's that by being able to feel that suffering, it keeps mentalics from taking more than they need. Uh, I thought that was really interesting as a way to kind of uh, contrast Day and even Harry's leadership styles of, well, we're making these trade-offs and we're just not going to think about the things we're cutting off. Whereas Tellem and the Mentalics are saying, no, you're going to directly plug into the feelings of those you're impacting. Well, yeah, going back again to the idea of villains saying things that are true or compelling, right? I think a valid criticism, certainly of Empire and also of psychohistory, is that they treat human beings as an abstraction, that they distance themselves from the kind of moral implications of what they're doing to these people. And what she's saying is we don't put blinders on ourselves. We hear the suffering. We hear the, the psychic screams of every animal that we eat. We hear the psychic screams of every tree that we cut down. And we're just being more honest yeah. about what we're doing, you know. We're different. We don't shy away from the pain we cause. We honor it. If you feel everything, you don't take more than you need. This came from a conversation we had in the room. Somebody had just randomly, I think it was me, had randomly said, like, what if they did a crawfish boil? Because yes. we were just looking for yeah. what is the culture of mentalics. We want to see it a little bit more. We want to, like, understand what Ignis is like. And eventually we were doing a crawfish boil, and we started talking about what that would mean for psychics. And at the time... Like, I kind of recently stopped eating meat, and we were talking about mm -hmm. that. And where we draw the lines on what we eat is pretty arbitrary yeah. when you start to think about it. And it all spun out of that initial conversation. Yeah. I'm struck by uh, the ability of our leaders to not ever take any responsibility for the <laughs> negative parts of the things that occur, <laughs> you know, from their philosophy. Like, it is, I, we are meant, I think, to be confronted with how intensely immoral it is to rummage around people's heads and yet tell them is also like, and yet people get mad at us for this. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the last episode, she says that thing about, like, we know when the husbands are cheating and yeah, the kings yeah. are, are yeah. full of shit. So, you know, it's it's just like part of her philosophy. I think she's she's obsessed with death, we know, and and longevity and she's very sensitive to other people and yet she still hurts them anyway which i think makes her <laughs> interesting if you eric and david had to pick one of our current leaders on the show to follow day tell him harry or gail who would it be at this at this juncture in the story you gave us a choice. I was going to say constant but you've given us a choice of actual like people who are the boss let's see who are yeah. um I, my heart would want to go with Gail, but Gail is clearly cards down about something at this point. Yes, but but I think Harry's really, 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 really smart. So I'm hoping, despite Harry or Doctor Selden. Well, well, did you listen, ask you about Harry said. or Selden? I mean, <laughs> do we have a choice, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, I'm going to go Harry. Harry, yes. I like Harry I, a little I, more. I think yeah. I would go with Harry. Uh, I choose Harry. I think yeah. I would choose Harry as well. Dr. Selden makes me a little nervous. He was mean to Constant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's time for another round of Building the Foundation, our light speed round of questions about the world of foundations. So buckle up, Eric. It's your first light speed round. Yeah. Oh, yeah. boy. You're in the hot seat. Show you want to build a pot. Who's supposed to be the one? Why do you put her in the pot? You want to be in control? You know nothing! Okay, here we go. Harry travels through Brother Constant's brain. Is it a new form of transportation he's working out? Is this kind of like a sliver AI, kind of like a splinter version of himself? How does he do this? When he embraces Constant in the vault, uh, we see a little bit of energy pass from his hologram to her within the confines of the vault. That is a small piece of his program, so not the huge petabyte or whatever mm -hmm. he is, uh, being transferred into a brain. I think uh, they've done a lot of experimental work with computers and organic tissue in the world of the Foundation, and so he is able to ride around as a passenger in her. He's like, he's like a uh, Trojan horse virus. And there are those little moments from the time Polly and Constant arrive on Tranter where Constant will say a little something that if you, sounds... If you, you rewatch Six, there's like three or four instances where she says something that is... That not... sounds a little bit more Jared Harris than yeah. Izzy. Yeah. And even a couple times you see Polly clock it like, what is going on? There must be a little bit of bleed between those consciousnesses. Uh, talk to me about the facial scramblers that Sarath and Dawn use for their meeting. Are there presets? Can you customize the face? How does that work? I think those are eigen faces. They're, I think they're faces pulled from, they're like AI generated yeah, faces. Yeah. Like those they're things, presets. Those they're things presets. you're say, seeing people make that are people who that don't exist but look photoreal, I think they're those. Yeah. How do the mentalics and how would Gale and Salvor deal with the fact that now they are aware that everything they eat screams? If the plants scream too, what's the what's the move here? I don't know, like nutritional drips, like intravenous <laughs> drips. Uh, at, at least whatever screams the least, probably. Yeah, you can't do fungus. You can't no. even eat mushrooms. Those things are talking to each other. I yeah. think you're screwed. Yeah. This brings me to my next question. Opalisk, what's it taste like? Ooh, black licorice. Black licorice or red vines? Ooh, that's not bad. Yeah. Okay. I hate black licorice. And then we have to ask, if Harry's on Tranter... Who is in the vault? Who is in the vault? Not what is in the vault, who is yeah, in the vault? Yeah, who is in the vault? It's Harry's all the way down. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, fascinating episode. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, David, thank you as well. Pleasure to talk to you both. We'll be back next week covering episode eight. The director of that episode, Roxanne Dawson. Thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Ben Goldberg. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Darby Maloney is our editor. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Our composer is Carly Bond with additional music provided by Apple. And I'm Jason Concepcion. Thank you for listening. What kind of a ghost is this man you follow? Who keeps an elder in the dark and uses the body of a girl? You love him, you'll forgive him, but still, the violation. <laughs>